617, respond to report of shots fired. The Coroner Talk podcast takes you behind the scenes with coroners, clinicians, and death investigators from around the world to provide training, news, and interviews from leading experts in the area of death investigation and scene management, bringing real stories and solid training together in one source. Now, here's your host, Darren Dake. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of Coroner Talk, the only podcast in iTunes dedicated to the men and women working the field of death investigation. Have a really neat show planned for you today. I was asked uh, over this last weekend to speak at the True Crime Conference in St. Charles, Missouri, and it was a very interesting afternoon. We had uh, several topics. Uh, there was probably like four sessions going on at the same time all afternoon, and we had Dr. Mary Case from the St. Louis Medical Examiner's Office there. We had forensic anthropologists. We had some true crime trivia sessions going on. We had some other podcasts going on, giving presentations. And then, of course, I had been asked there to talk about uh, the Coroner Talk podcast, not only introducing who we are and what we what we do and who we serve, but also to talk a little bit about the duties of a coroner. So that's what I was there for. And it was a great afternoon. It was a, it was a rainy, nasty afternoon outside, and it gave a reason for everybody to come in and to listen to these presentations. And it was, it was fun. So I did talk about the duties of the coroner, introduced the Corner Talk podcast some, and had a great interaction with the folks there in St. Charles. So I've recorded that session, and you're going to get to hear it here today. So some of it you know, is a little bit hard to hear, and the, and the audio isn't perfect like it is right now, but it is still uh, a very good presentation. I think you're really going to like it. Now, before we get into that, I need to remind you that if you want to take part in the Medical Legal Online Academy in 2019, you've only got one chance left, and that is November 9, 2019. So you, so as this episode comes out live, you've only got a couple of weeks before that session closes and begins. So you're going to have to get registered for that. Now, last week, we had our Medical Legal Death Investigator live class here in our academy in Missouri. Great group of people from four different states, lots of investigators. We learned a lot from each other. Had some great practical exercises and lectures. It was fantastic. And we'll hold that again in March here in Missouri if you're interested. But in the meantime, the online academy starts in November 9th in just a few days from now. So this lecture that I gave is a little bit long. So I'm going to stop on all the peripheral stuff and let's get directly into uh, the the recording of the presentation I gave at the True Crime Conference in St. Charles, Missouri. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. So my name is Darren Dake. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about the Coroner Talk podcast and the duties of a coroner. Um, tell you what the podcast is about, things like that. And we're going to talk about actual uh, duties of a coroner. And then we're going to actually talk about real, uh, one real case. So uh, you will see pictures of dead people, and you will see pictures that are extremely gross. Anybody have a problem with that? So when I show you a picture of maggots falling out of somebody's mouth, if you throw up, it's on you from this point. Okay? So we're you want to we want to talk about the about corners and corner talk podcast. We're going to talk about it, right? And yes, this is true crime. So we have the, the true crime podcast out there that talk about serial killers. Uh, the talk about uh, murders in St. Louis. Talk about things like that. The other podcasts they're fantastic. They're great entertainment. What I do is not entertainment. Um, our Corner Talk podcast, any of you can get on and listen to it. 
Uh, but we talk about the real life of coroners, death investigators, police officers, crime scene techs, things like that. And so, uh, you know, we talk about the real stuff. So, um, and then, uh, you know, that's just kind of, uh, a preview of what we're going to do. So he's my clicker. So I'll just kind of point. So my name is Darren Dake. I started law enforcement in 1986. Who here was born after 1986? I thought my front row would be that way. So <clears throat> I started law enforcement in 1986, started out in the military, uh, military policeman, worked uh, garrison duty, which is like a road cop, uh, worked in Leavenworth prison for a while. I went from there into civilian law enforcement, uh, worked for a couple different counties, and found out during that time that I had a very big interest in sex cases and death cases. I could work them because... They didn't bother me like it bothered other people. Um, I had a goal of getting people in jail. Um, I had a goal of getting some confessions. And uh, decomps and brains and dealing with all of that stuff that coroners and medical examiners deal with didn't bother me like other people. So I excelled. And so um, I ended up uh, making lieutenant over the detective division, had investigators under me. Uh, if somebody stole your tractor or hit you with a ball bat, I had detectives take care of that. If someone did something to you sexually or killed you, I was your guy. Other than that, I really didn't care what happened to you. So I continued to excel in that. And then in 1998, um, I also became involved in our local coroner's office. So I was a police detective and a coroner investigator. And since then, it has kind of been that way ever since. Now, uh, I'm, I am no longer uh, with the sheriff's department. I'm in a, a semi-retirement job. Um, I still hold commissions with the police departments in the sheriff's office. I still do investigations. Uh, I pri primarily. Primarily, it's with uh, uh, death investigation cases, although I do have one sexual assault on my desk now. Uh, but I also teach with Death Investigation Training Academy, and I fly all over the world teaching people how to solve murder and how to investigate death in the scene level. So that, that's what I do. And then about five years ago, I started the uh, Corner Talk podcast. And I did that because across the country, there was not a lot of training when it comes to death investigation, uh, specific training for death investigation. You know, there was uh, fingerprint analysis, crime scene investigation, homicide investigation from the theory of uh, interrogations and finding people, but not for coroners and, and MDIs or medical legal death investigators. So uh, from there, I started a podcast because in my mind, I envisioned, now this is what's interesting. I envisioned a small county in Mississippi with a coroner that didn't have much money, didn't have a time to get away. Uh, that was elected, trying to do a good job, and he had no training. So I figured if I could give him one hour a week training, then he would have 52 hours a year worth of training. It wouldn't cost him anything. That was my, that's how I envisioned it, right? And what's interesting is, uh, since that time, I do a lot of work with Mississippi. In fact, I'm going back the first week of December. Now, it, it worked out that way, I guess, just simply because I had started my avatar as Mississippi. I have no idea why. But Mississippi, we do a lot of work with them. So, but that was the thing is there's a lot of corners around the country that don't have the money or the resources to have a lot of training. So we provide that. Plus then we have the Death Investigation Academy, you know, which trains police officers. In fact, uh, in August, I had 20 South Korean National Police flew into our uh, campus and we taught them uh, medical legal death investigation. They spent two weeks at our facility. So, so that's kind of where I'm coming from. And what we're going to talk about today is exactly the corner work. So. Can someone tell me what a coroner does? If I was just to ask you on the street, what does a coroner do? What would your answer be, young lady? What's your name? Courtney. Courtney. So what would your answer be? 
Investigate dead bodies. What's the difference between coroner and ME? Think about that. Go ahead. You have determined cause of death. That's a good answer. Somebody else. What else might they do? So in this world of coroner versus ME, at 4 o'clock, you're going to get to sit and listen to Dr. Mary Case. Mary Case is, is a brilliant lady. You know, we in this industry, it's a very small industry, but um, she's a very brilliant lady. But, you know, she is a medical examiner, not a coroner. Coroners are elected in Missouri. In some states, they, uh, the medical examiners are called coroners. But in Missouri, coroners are elected. So there's this, there's this little, I, I started to say silent battle. For the most part, it's silent, but it's not completely silent. Battle about coroners versus medical examiners, okay? So uh, what a coroner does is determine cause and manner of death, just like a medical examiner. Uh, coroners go out to the scene of a crime, scene of a death, uh, and they investigate that death right alongside the police. Uh, if you're in a coroner county and your loved one dies at home from hospice or in a nursing home or in, in any way dies, they must be no the coroner must be notified. Now, depending on the law in, in that area and the circumstances of death, they might not come to your house, but they have to be notified. So a coroner is very much involved in the death. In fact, they must be notified of a death in every county that, that they're in that county, okay, whatever county that is. Now, St. Charles is an ME county. So this county you're in now, if you die, the medical examiner's going to be notified. And they've had investigators. I know several of them. They're fantastic people. So told, it's, a sa it's the same system except coroners. Uh, now, there's some cold coroners that are medical examiners, but coroners don't cut people, okay? Coroners are investigators. They don't cut people. If if you die in my county and you need cut, I'll send you either to St. Louis or Columbia, and they'll cut you. Okay, I don't I don't cut you. I just investigate your death. Okay, so let's talk about the beginning of coroner. So in in, in eleven ninety four, that's been a minute. Okay, coroners were started because they were called crowners. Okay, part of the crown system in England, and coroners were for one purpose. When you died. The crown wanted to send me out there to collect. They had to tax you heavily when you died, and we wanted to get everything we could for the for the king from your death. So when so that was the job of a crowner is to go get as much stuff as we could from you for the the royalty. Okay, that's their job. And and then the the coroner's act of 1887, which 1887 has been a long time, but it hasn't been that long ago. When, when, when it started in 1194. So it went for a long time where coroners were pretty much just debt collectors or tax collectors when you would die. Well, it made significant changes, repealing a lot of the earlier legislation, and then coroners became more concerned determining the circumstances around the death. They became more concerned with why the person died. Now, there was a little bit of taxation there, too, uh, but whenever they come to America, uh, there was uh, some changes when whenever English came to America, there were some changes with the coroner system a little bit because we wasn't working for the king anymore, right? Because we were independent of the king. But there was still a little bit of, of that, uh, what can we get for the, the, the government type thing. Well, here in 1887, we became concerned with why a person died because criminals were going free because no one would investigate the death like it should be. And you imagine in 1887, we still had cowboys and Indians. You know, we still had a lot of horseback. We still had Dodge City. We still had that was that was very very popular then. Uh, you've seen a lot of westerns where uh, the Undertaker um, would, would somebody would die, and the Undertaker would put his drink down a saloon and come running out, and 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 he's dead, and 
And then they would put him in a pine box. Somebody would be building pine boxes, things like that. So a lot of times, that was the undertaker in town. He was a funeral director. He would bury you um, on the side of the hill, but he was also the coroner. And he would also help investigate whether or not someone uh, killed you based upon a crime. Or what, And in those days, you know, a, a, a good shootout in the street, as long as we both fairly squared off and counted down and drew, that was a, that was a fair fight. So there necessarily wasn't any, any fight there. But had, had, had you just got drunk and shot somebody in a bar? Well, the undertaker would come and drag you out, but he would be involved in assisting the sheriff in, in prosecuting that. Now, as time went on, more and more science became developed and they become more interested in actually the science of how somebody died, not just who said what. So according to the person whose standard role is to confirm and certify death. Now, a lot of times if I ask somebody, uh, what a coroner does, they'll say that they pronounce people dead. Well, that's not really the case. Now, a coroner can pronounce somebody dead, but a coroner is called to a scene when someone has died. Well, if someone has died, someone's already pronounced that, right? So it could be the doctor, it could be a paramedic, it could be a nurse, it could be a police officer, but someone of competent authority has said, that person is dead, and so we need to contact the coroner by statute, okay? A coroner may also conduct and order an inquest into a manner and cause of death. Anybody hear the word coroner inquest? Have you heard that word? So here's what these are, and these are very important. It's like a grand jury in, in coroner counties in a lot of ways. Uh, if, we have a, if we have a police-involved shooting in, in the county that I'm from, we always hold a coroner's inquest. If there's a, a death that has occurred where we don't know for sure whether it is a real, whether it's an accident or maybe a homicide, we hold a coroner's inquest. And here's what an inquest is. The coroner tells the sheriff to find me six able-bodied men and women throughout the county or the district and have them in court. The coroner then is in charge of the proceedings. Okay, And the prosecuting attorney may be there, but he doesn't have any standing. Somebody's defense attorney may be there, but they don't have any standing. Okay. The, the, the coroner runs the show. So the coroner will call his first witness, and they'll call you to the stand, and they'll say, well, ma'am, was you there when this happened? Yes or no? Can you tell me what happened? And they explain everything, and, and the on and on and on. So then at the end of this presentation of facts, the police officers, the investigators, the, the jury then retires to the jury room, and they deliberate, and they decide, was this, they'll be given instructions, was this an accident or a homicide? Was it a justified shooting? or an unjustified shooting, and like in the case of a police officer. But when the jury comes back, they render their verdict, and that verdict is final. Now, the prosecuting attorney then has the right to file charges if he wants to, bypass prelim, and take you straight to circuit court on those charges. Now, the law does not say the, pro the prosecuting attorney has to, right? So if it comes back and says that it's an unjustified shooting and charges should be applied, the prosecutor still has the right to charge or not charge, right? But what the inquest does, it gives the coroner the ability to say, look, I'm one guy, I've got a couple of investigators, I don't know everything. This is a little equivocal. It could go either way. There's a lot of weird stuff here. Let's call in a jury. And in a case of a police shooting, like we had a couple couple years ago, uh, a police officer shot a, uh, shot a gentleman that was unarmed, and it, the, the whole situation was caught on video except for the shots. And so then that caused a big deal. The inquest allowed us to bring in a lot of officers, a lot of information, and the officer subsequently was found that it was a justified shooting. 
that helps the coroner then to say, okay, this was a homicide, but it was a justified homicide, right? Okay, so let's define cause of death. Uh, we have to define cause and manner of death. Cause of death refers to the disease or injury that initiated the train of morbid events. For instance, blunt force trauma. So blunt force trauma would be something like being hit in the head with a ball bat. Okay, that, that started the train of events. When you got hit in the head with a ball bat, then things started to happen. Uh, injury from a gunshot. Who can tell me what myocardial infarction is? Ooh, the whole, the whole room knew it. Awesome. So yes, myocardial infarction. Now, a uh, you can't say that the manner of death was heart attack. It's not a manner. Okay, the cause is heart attack. Um, COPD, that's a cause. Now, again, if it's COPD, then the manner most likely would be natural, but these may be, uh, different things. An accident. I know that, uh, we've had a couple of cases where someone was hit by a drunk driver and they, uh, were injured and they lived for two or three years and, be but they continued to have problems and they had to have amputations and, and their, their life just never got back on track and they were always sick. And after two years, they died. And the doctor said they died based upon injuries that continued to fester more and more until they died from the accident. So that, then they charged that person back. So, and, and the longest one I've known of has been 15 years because the train of morbid events started two, three, four, five, ten, whatever years ago. And if medical science can say all of this has continued on, then they died. And now that person is charged with vehicular manslaughter. So, so the cause is what starts the train of events. That train of event might be the whole, the whole train might only be two cars and take three seconds, or it might take 15 years, but it goes back to the cause. Okay. Next slide. Okay. Defining manner. There are five manners. Okay. Natural, accident, suicide, homicide, and undetermined. And there's a lot of investigators that don't like undetermined, but undetermined means we don't know. And that's okay to say that. It's okay to say on a death certificate, we don't know the manner. We know that he was shot in the head and he died of a gunshot injury. That was the cause. But we don't know the manner. Was it an accident, suicide, or homicide? And there's proof, maybe, of all three, and we don't know. And so rather than just ruling it suicide when we don't have our ability to hang our hat on it, we rule it undetermined. That's the proper way to do it. Now, all of these come with implications. Uh, if I rule something a suicide, Tell me some implications that can come with a suicide ruling. Insurance implication. Something else. Religious. Very, very, very much religious. Anything else? So families don't like suicide rulings. In, in, in the 30-some years I've been in law enforcement, hundreds and hundreds or thousands of suicides, I bet you that I have two or three families ever say, yep, I agree, dad killed himself. Everyone was like, can't happen. My dad would never do that. My mom would never do that. My son would never do that. Because somebody else did it. Bob did it. What are you, you know, who are you looking at? Families don't like suicide. But even in natural cause, if I rule something natural causes, uh, there's still implications. What could be implications in a natural cause? Grandma was old and she died. What, what kind of implications can I get as a coroner for ruling it natural causes? Might have been a medication. Very true. Anybody else? Might have been the caretaker. So, you know, I wasn't around mom too much. I really didn't like her. I surely didn't want to take care of her. Um, so I let my sister do it, right? So my sister took care of mom. So after mom died, I realized that since my sister was there all the time, she started, you know, she got a lot of mom's money. Mom kind of changed the will and all this. Well, I didn't like mom anyway, but now she's dead. I want her money. 
So by God, guess what? I think my sister killed my mom. So now I'm going to start blaming my sister for killing my mom, right? So that I can get her out of the picture so I can get the money back, right? Happens all the time. Happens all the time. Because it, just because it's, or maybe they say, well, the doctor did it. You know, it's natural causes, but that doctor, that doctor over there at Mercy, he's an idiot. You know, he didn't treat mom correctly. Uh, he, he released her out of the hospital. He shouldn't have done that. There, again, none of that may be valid, but there's implications. Even when, even when an old lady dies in her bed, there's somebody not going to agree with it. It happens all the time, right? But we have to deal with that. Mary Case has to deal with that on the medical examiner side in her district. We deal with it in the corner districts. Of course, homicides, they come with a lot of implications. Um, accidents, tell me, tell me an implication in an accident. If I rule, if I rule fall an accident, what kind of implications can I get from that? Whose fault was it? If there's an accident, who's responsible for the accident? Well, the rug was torn. Well, the scaffolding uh, broke. Well, the, some, you know, the stop sign wasn't in plain view. The city didn't get the brushes trimmed back and the guy didn't see the stop sign or it was an accident, but but who can I blame so I can get a payday? I'll just say that publicly. Who can I blame so I can get a payday? Now, sometimes it's who can I blame so that it can be fixed, right? Uh, but if there's a car accident and there's two cars involved, there's one thing we can guarantee in the corner industry. If there are two cars involved and somebody dies, there's a lawsuit. That happens. That's guaranteed. Sometimes it's just a lawsuit to decide who's going to pay for bills and all this. But there's money to be made when someone dies. Not from us, but from other people. Next slide. Okay, a manner of death is determined by the medical examiner or coroner. Natural is defined as a death caused solely by disease or natural process. If anything else comes into play there, then it cannot be natural. You can be dying of lung cancer. You can be on your last few days of, uh, of medication and your lungs are filling up with fluid. You're gasping for air. Anybody have a loved one die of cancer in their home? It is horrible. And I am so sorry you've had to witness that. You try to love them. You're with them all day long. And then they pass away in your home. I, I'm there afterwards. I've never experienced it on your end. And it's got to be horrific. But some families are like, uh, we got a cruise next week. And Papa should have been dead already. Right? So um, Papa needs to go because we need to get him out of here underground. And we got a cruise. So what was natural, what would have been natural, they sped it up. Little pillow on the face, little extra medication. You know, if a little dab will do you, what will more? You know, and so they end up killing Papa. And it happens often, more than you might think. Because it's one thing if, Papa, if Papa's dying, he's in, a bed, he's in a bed in your living room, and that's fine for a while. But when the doctors say he has three, you know, three to six months to live and you're on, you're on nine or ten, it's like, Papa got to go. We got to do something. Okay? And so it's true. It happens, right? So as a coroner, we have to come in and say, okay, did they die naturally? Which in most cases they do. But what am I looking at here? What, what are the medication levels? What's the toxicology levels? Uh, you know, how, do, how does all this play out? Is there, is there marks on the body? Is there marks on the face or something I need to look at to say, oh, this don't really look right? And sometimes we have to rely on the hospice nurses to tell us, Hey, I'm here. Yes, we have several questions like medication in check. Is this an expected death? Well, what do you mean expected? They're dying of cancer. Of course, it's expected. No, because you can be put on hospice and live just fine for a while, and then you start to decline. So my question is, has it been a slow decline where they've been going? Yeah, you know, the heart nurse will say, yeah, we've it's been 24 hours. We knew it was any time. We've watched it decline, or like 
Uh, yeah, no, she's been just fine. And all of a sudden the family calls me and she's dead. Well, I want to look at that a little more, right? So we ask the right questions. They are charged. If we can prove that there's a murder, they are charged. Because even though they were dying naturally, they didn't let the process go and they could be charged. Now, if they want to claim as a mercy killing or something like that, that's up to lawyers. Missouri don't, or Missouri don't offer that excuse. Okay. Missouri don't offer assisted suicide excuses, right? So, Something we, and you'll, this real case that I'm going to show you in a few minutes, was, um, you're going to tell me whether it was suicide or not. But, you know, if, if, if you're bedridden and you're quadriplegic and all you can do is just suck straw and lay there, so how'd you get upstairs and get the gun out of dad's dresser and get back down to your bed, right? It ain't going to happen. Well, you know, they're laying in bed, they committed suicide. Okay, when I get there, you know, you ain't got use of any of your limbs, right? Right? They're all they're all dead. Well, with a little background history, if I don't do a background history and realize, oh wait, you were quadriplegic. Now I got a problem, right? Or or medication overdoses. Again, it, just because they're dying naturally, anything that interrupts that process of that natural death, someone can be charged. Yes. Yeah, if they give the patient more drugs and they go ahead and take it, they make access, then that's suicide for the patient. But if you give the patient access to it, then you can be charged. Yeah, so like, well, again, let's say grandma can't get out of bed, right? We, she, she can't get out of bed. And grandma says, look, Dorothy, I need to go. I got to go. And Dorothy says, look, grandma, you know, here's what I'll do. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to leave all the pills here and a bottle of water um, so you have access to it. And when I get home, then, you know, I'll call the coroner. Okay, well, if you've given Grandma all those pills, now, if Grandma can get up and walk around or, or even crawl, and she crawls out of bed and crawls into the kitchen and takes her, her last little strength to get it and does it herself, then she does it herself. But if you help her, then you can be charged in the state of Missouri, okay? It's up to the prosecutor, of course, but you can you can be charged, okay? Yes? Sometimes, you know, Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. If it says do not resuscitate, then if they if they quit breathing, you don't even try. Um, and, and that and that is true. Uh, and those cases come up. In fact, we had one just the other day where a woman uh, got put on hospice, but she was like put on hospice like, like, like I'm fine. I'm, I'm fine. I, I got three to six months to live. I know I'm going to be going downhill, but today I'm fine. Well, two days later she dies. Uh, you know, well she had a DNR. So. They, you know, they called the 911, but the ambulance got there and the husband showed the DNR and they, they didn't start anything. Well, it caused an issue in, in a little bit and the other family members saying, but she wasn't far enough along yet. She wasn't weak. She wasn't, doesn't matter. She had a DNR. She had a heart attack. Doesn't matter how far along she was in her disease process. She still died and had a DNR, regardless of what it was. But a DNR doesn't necessarily mean you can kill them, right? Yeah. Just because they have a DNR doesn't mean like, um, DNR does not mean assist me in suicide. It means don't resuscitate if I naturally die. So how, so how many prosecutors follow through with that? Well, I will tell you that after 34 years of law enforcement, I've learned one thing. You never try to understand an attorney's brain. Okay? Um, you never know. Right? So a lot of it will depend on uh, how aggressive the, the prosecutor is. Uh, is there other family members pushing? You know, it, or, or is it even known? So, so if it got found out as a possibility, then there's an investigation. Will, will, is other family members upset? 
And if they're upset pushing, then maybe the prosecutor would push a little bit more to do it. But prosecutors have their right to to charge or not charge. So uh, the percentage wise, you know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't know that. But I do know that there. I understand there's human compassion coming into play, and a prosecutor might say, "Look, you know, you did this." Now, if you hold a pillow over Papa's head, maybe the prosecutor wouldn't be as nice to you as if you just overdosed him on morphine and let Papa fall asleep. Because then that's, he just fell asleep and died. You know, you're straddling Papa with a pillow. Prosecutor might say, look, I don't care if it's a murder killing or not. You're coming to court, right? But that's where we have to get involved and show the prosecutor that the pillow was involved. Because that goes to intent as well. Okay. How do we do what? So there's, how do you smother them? So sometimes you can't, but sometimes you can see injuries on the nose and the mouth and things like that. Um, and then if the person is viable at all, uh, the adrenaline goes up and they can be struggling for them li- their life and you'll know, maybe scratching somebody and they got broken fingernails or, or the, their lip is cut from the teeth. There's something you can see. Now, there are times, I will tell you straight up, I, I promise you, there are a lot of hospice patients that's been murdered in the state of Missouri and we don't know it. You can't know it all because it's they're dying anyway. They slipped off in their sleep and died. We wouldn't necessarily know it, right? And I, and I understand that. But anything odd or suspicious comes up, it's our job to investigate that out fully to find out. Okay, next slide. Okay, mechanism is a physiological derangement that results in death. So, let's talk about this. Are you married? Do you have a boyfriend? Do you have a boyfriend? What's his name? Torin. Okay, what's your first name? Okay, so Courtney and Torin got into a fight. Okay, and uh, Torin gets out of the truck on a gravel road and decides, you know what, I've had too much beer, I really, really need to go uh, potty. So he's out there in a gravel road, and all of a sudden this truck runs over, uh, I forget his name again, Torrin. So the truck runs over Torrin. Well, the mechanism of death could be that dissected the aorta, crushed, you know, heart muscles and lungs, okay, because she ran over him because, you know, she found out what he was doing in her absence, and he deserved to be ran over, okay? The manner of death could be any of them except natural. It's our job to decide, was it an accident that the truck rolled over him? Okay, because because it slipped out of gear? Okay, it probably wasn't suicide. Okay, so if it slipped if it slipped out of gear and you were in a truck trying to get to the driver's seat to stop it, that that's fine and maybe you can prove that, okay? But when you backed when you were put in reverse and backed over again, then that the then that means and this is a true case, by the way. And then that means that it's probably not an accident, right? But Torn ain't gonna do that again, right? So the mechanism of death is what actually killed them. So it was an so it was a homicide, right? And it was a blunt force trauma was the cause. The manner was homicide. The mechanism was probably separated aorta, crushed heart muscle, something like that. Okay. So there's three things we have to determine. Next slide. Okay. Times of death, there's three. Physiological time of death, estimated, and legal. Now, these are very important. If you have a death certificate, and you look at it, and it says time of death, that is the legal time of death. That That's for, for all legal purposes. Physiological is a time that your bodily functions stop. That's physiological. That is rarely known unless you are on an operating table with a staff of surgeon. Because... When those, when, when that stops, even if, you know, they, they, you're at a heart attack, you're here, you fall out, you have a heart attack, we call 911, they start working on you, they give you enough epi to start heart beating the rock, they run you to Mercy or wherever the closest hospital is, 
they, they start working on you, working on you. And sometime in about 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes from now, some doctor is going to say, uh, call, stop, time of death, 1604. Okay, that's time of death. Physiological was when you fell on the floor. Because probably if we can't get you back a CPR here, one or two shot of epi, you're done, you're not coming back, right? But that's not necessarily known. Estimated is how, how long can estimated time of death be legally? How many, how long can that window be? Years. Minutes, weeks, months, years. Um, estimated time of death. You left, you left here at 3.30, walked out to your car, everything was fine, you're on camera, 3.30 is fine. Well, at 6.30, your car's still out there and you're in it dead. Well, sometime between 3.30 and 6.30 is when you die. Unless we can narrow that window based upon a bunch of other stuff and, and we try to, but it could be days, right? Uh, you go home tonight, you're live by yourself, everything is fine. Uh, nobody checks on you tomorrow and come Monday morning, you don't show up for work. Now your time, you could be 36 hours worth of estimated. Those are important for us for criminal reasons, civil reasons, but your will probably be most with time of death is the legal time. That's when we show up, you're pronounced, the police say you were dead, that's the legal time. Next slide. Okay, now. The legal. The legal. That's when someone finally says, yep, you're dead. And that's the legal. So, now, I'm going to preface this, and then we're going to start looking at the pictures. Anybody want to leave yet? You, you cannot unsee things. Okay. That's legal. Even though, even though grandma died three hours ago, and you call the hospice nurse, you call the family, the nurse gets up out of bed, has to drive down there, they finally get to your house, you know they're dead. They've been dead for three hours. I mean, you, you don't take a rocket science sometimes to know they're dead. But the hospice nurse gets there, and once she declares it, that's the legal. Yep. Um, so that happens a lot, especially if you if you rule someone brain dead. It takes two doctors. Um, in this case, she called in another nurse to verify. There's things you do to verify death because there sometimes if you don't have pupil response or you don't hear a heartbeat, maybe you don't hear heartbeat, but but maybe it's because the heartbeats are so far apart that you gave up too soon and they're not actually dead. So that two nurses try to check that. You know, and then that comes into the ME's office after that. But, yep, written, yep. Yep. No, that's right. Yep, removing off life support is a legal issue that's fine. That's not really assisting. Right, that's right, exactly. And then that time of death would be as soon as one of the doctors or somebody there says, okay, they're finally dead. Sometimes that's immediate. Uh, sometimes that takes several minutes for somebody to actually die after they come off ventilator. Okay, so this is just some signs of or, or hours of PMIs, postmortem changes. One to two hours, lividity, two to five hours uh, is fixed in the body, six hours. All that stuff, if you know medical stuff, you know about this stuff, it makes sense to you. If not, uh, in our short amount of time, I really can't explain a lot of it to you. Uh, but I'll show you some I'll show you some pictures. Pictures worth a thousand words. Are you ready? Go. One more. Okay, this is called lividity. Now, lividity is a settling of the blood to the lowest part of the body. So, um, if I would go, if I was go onto a scene and the one on your right, that person was laying face down on a bed and no one said, and they said, we never moved her. There's a lie. Okay, because lividity doesn't go uphill. 
blood doesn't go uphill. So obviously that levity is on the wrong side. So that's what it is, just a pooling of the blood. And it helps us to understand how long a person's been dead based upon whether it blanches or not. On the left, you can see I pushed my thumb in that and it turned white. Everybody, everybody raise your thumb up. Look at your thumb. See how nice and pink it is? Now take your other finger and pinch it till it hurts. Pinch it till it hurts. Keep it, keep it, keep it, keep it. Now let go. And you see it's white and it turned pink again, right? The capillaries refill. When I can push in in the capillaries, I can push the blood out of the capillaries, it is not fixed. If it's fixed, then that tells us it's a lot longer time. Then you can roll them and it won't move. All right? So, next slide. Rigor mortis is just uh, stiffening of the joints. Where does rigor mortis start in the body? Uh, you say jaw? Okay. Right. So, so rigor mortis starts in the body everywhere at the same time. However, because the jaw and the fingers are smaller muscles, you will see it there faster. So within one to two hours, you're going to see that the jaw stiffened up, the fingers are stiffened up, but maybe not the arms and legs. Bigger muscles. That's why someone like you will go into rigor mortis a lot faster than our last speaker, Mitch. Mitch is sporting a little bit more body mass and muscle. It'll take him longer for his full rigor to come up. You know, older people, very frail people, babies, younger people that are skinny, they got less muscles, so they rigor faster. So for us, when we go and say, yeah, they're in full rigor, we can't say, yeah, they've been dead five hours. Anybody watch NCIS? I love NCIS. I do. And I like Ducky. Okay. And I've stuck a lot of liver probes in a lot of dead people in my life. But unlike Ducky, I can't stick my liver probe in there and say they died at 2.12 a.m. That's not possible. Okay. But things like liver mortis, things like rigor mortis, that can't help me narrow it down when I take things like body mass, medication, the, you know, environment. Uh, if I set you out there in the street in July, you're going to rigor a lot faster than you will today. Right. Cause it's cool outside. Next slide. Uh, yeah, you know, you know, Missouri, Daddy Light, hold my beer. Yes, that was a beer can. Uh, yeah, he's dead. All these are dead. We're in a coroner thing. We talk about dead people. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I get it. So the top left there is uh, bloating and discoloration. You'll see that in about, about 36 hours to four days. Uh, you do not want these pictures on your website. Um <laughs> Skin slippage literally is when you start and, and the skin starts coming off. That's called skin slippage. You're looking at four or five days. Okay. Uh, and then you've got that modeling again as part of decomposition. Uh, one thing that the nature, God, the universe, Buddha, whoever you call on has created us to do one thing. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. When we die, we immediately start decomposing. Okay. Every living creature does it. Next slide. Okay, this is bloating. Um, this guy was probably her size when he started. Um, I am exaggerating a little bit, but not really. Little people can get extremely bloated. Okay, ever heard the word floater? So a floater is when they've been underwater long enough, and they get warm under there, and they start decomposing. Well, then they balloon up like this, and then they float until decomposition continues, and then they start deflating, and they go to the bottom to never come back up unless we find them. Okay. Um, when you pull a floater out of the water, it is the worst experience you will ever have. Next slide. Okay, this that you, um, this guy here, he'd been dead for about two weeks um, in a very warm, hot environment, hot, hot, hot environment. Uh, what you can't see from there, like I told you earlier, but but you don't see him, is his mouth is full of maggots, and and entomology is another whole whole course. But uh, 
he committed suicide in his uh, mobile home, you know, like July, Missouri, 114 inside this little mobile home. So about two weeks, you know, uh, and that is a Caucasian male. If you, I mean, from back there, obviously they're black. That's, that's decomposition. That's not um, race. Next slide. This guy here, um, he's face down in the, in the, in the woods. Of course, there, um, what do you think those white things are? Who having Chinese after class? He's going to Chinese buffet. Okay. Maggots are a wonderful thing for death investigators. Maggots help us determine time of death. And then after we use them to determine time of death, then they continue. Well, of course, by that time we pick them up. But, but if we left them out there, maggots will decimate a body within a week's, depending on the size. Maggots are very, very good at, at getting rid of all soft tissue. And after they're done, then the, then the beetles and the vultures come in. Okay. Maggots are fantastic at, get, at getting rid of, of, uh, of bodies. Yes. Um, have you ever had a house fly in your house? Okay, maggots are fly eggs that hatch. They're eggs, and then they hatch, and they become little maggots. They go through three stages of uh, of uh, maggot life, and then they turn into what's called a pupa. A little looks like a little rat turd, to be honest with you. And then and then it hatches into a fly, and it starts all over again, right? So they, the blowflies will get into your house. Now, the tighter your house is, the longer it takes them to get there. But not today because it's cold. But if it was warm outside and you would die out there in July, there'd be a blowfly on your face probably within five minutes. But if you're in the house and everything's closed up, they can still get in. They can get in anywhere. Yeah, just like any other fly. Dead bodies. They can. They after you've been there for a few hours or a couple of days, they can smell you up to five miles. And their job is to do one thing: lay eggs on your dead corpse. And so they're constantly flying around, sniffing for dead things. Okay, and and I will tell you, they do not lay eggs very much on a possum. It is bad when it flies when even eat a possum. Sometimes they, sometimes you see that, but a lot of times, I mean, possums like nobody wants to eat a possum. You ever eat a possum? Even flies don't want to eat a possum. Next one. Okay, this gentleman here, uh, we were not dancing like it looks. Uh, this gentleman here has been in his bedroom floor for about six months. Uh, flies had already come in and done their thing several several uh, way. Uh, Several sessions of that. He that that probably weighs about 40, 50 pounds. He's nothing but skin and bone. All soft tissue is gone. Okay, so um, yes, he's facing that direction. What you see white down there is his teeth, and this. So he's like this, and this arm is over here like this because he had fell like this. So all that skin is leathery, hard leather, but there's no soft tissue. It's all gone. And in his bedroom floor, which the door was closed and it was a wooden floor. The rest of him was about three inches thick all around the floor because the flies, you know, they, you know, flies are messy creatures. Okay, next. He's black because the skin turned black. Uh, during the decomposition process, it mummifies and turns black. Everybody does. Everybody does. Everybody does. Yeah, over time, if you're dead long enough, you'll turn black and then you'll go away. Yeah. Unless you're black. If you're black, like Mitch, he turned white. I'm kidding. Nobody even caught that. Okay. No. Everybody turns black. So if they're in the water, they do, they, they're not as black. Uh, they, they, but they are a little, are a little lighter, but they, they will darken up quite a bit underwater. Unless you're embalmed. If you're embalmed, that changes everything. Yes. Unless you're embalmed, that changes everything if you're embalmed. Okay. Okay. This is mummification at the top and then skeletization at the bottom. 
Again, the, the bottom guy there, he's just been out long enough that he's nothing but skeleton. Now, you do see a little skin there, a little mummified skin, but the top is mummified and probably will not decompose much more than that, depending on the weather, especially like in high altitudes, moisture, things like that. You just mummify. So, yes. So, interesting. How long does the hair grow? Very interesting fact. People think that hair and fingernails continue to grow after death. It does not. It looks like it grows because the skin shrinks. So it looks like the fingernails have gotten longer. It looks like the hair has gotten longer. But it's the shrinking and the drying out of the skin. But very good question because a lot of people believe that. Next. Okay. Uh, we got, we'll run through this very fast. Are you ready to be detectives? All right. Go. Okay. This young man here, uh, is laying on a couch. One thing, uh, any paramedics in this room? Do you have any paramedics in your family? Thank goodness. Uh, par I love paramedics, and if I'm ever down, I hope one of them saves my life. Otherwise, they are the worst destructions of any crime scene. Okay? This man is dead. He's dead with a shotgun wound to the chest. He's been dead for a few hours, and they come in and put stickers all over him to see if he has a heartbeat. Well, I'll show you in a minute. He has a hole in his chest big enough to walk through. I don't think he needs to have EKG done. Okay. <clears throat> Go ahead. Next slide. Okay, this is just an overview shot. Again, uh, he's laid on the couch. He's dead. Now, again, I'm not being disrespectful. This is a very old case. This family has allowed us to use this for training. Again, we've we've hit an identity. Uh, it, it, we use this for training quite a bit. Okay, you can tell there's really nothing else around the house there. There's some like construction equipment or whatever, but but the scene isn't beat up. Tables aren't turned over. Things aren't like that didn't happen. It's pretty pretty calm scene. Next. Again, we get a little closer. Uh, some things you can see. There's fishing line there. This uh, long shaft-looking thing there is an arrow, like archery arrow. There's a pocket knife here with a lighter. It's a pencil and things like that. Uh, next slide. Again, from here, you can see that there's another arrow down here at the bottom. Uh, there's another remote. No, that's a cell phone. Sorry, this is a remote. That's a cell phone down there. That is a arrow. Next slide. Um, yeah, the arrow, the arrows wasn't in him. No. Uh, and there's a, a picture of the chest injury with, with blood on there. Next slide. Okay, so this is interesting. So here's a gentleman laying here. Um, again, he's got a, uh, he's got a big hole in his chest. And there's a shotgun laying behind the couch. First brush, suicide or homicide? Next slide. Not only is it laying behind the couch, there's also a cord over the top of it. Oh, yes, thank you. There's a cord over the top of it. So here's a shotgun. Here's a here's an extension cord laying over the top of the, of the gun. That's interesting, right? Because if he was to kill himself, if it fell back there, why would the cord be on top of the gun? Next slide. And the safety is off. That's very important when we look at investigations because if the safety is on, um, we do practice safe hunting. Uh, and safe shooting. But if I was to shoot myself, I probably wouldn't take the time before I died to snap safety back on. But if it is back on, that tells me, A, that's not the gun, or B, somebody else is involved here, or C, someone else picked the gun up and put it on safety. All right? Another problem we have sometimes with suicides is it could be, now, if it's downtown at the at the Galleria somewhere and, and a lot, hundred people around the mall and there's a gun laying there, I understand police need to pick that up. Right? If you're out here in the middle of the country and there is nobody around but you and a dead guy, police still want to pick that gun up and say, I secured the weapon for officer safety. Well, that really messes up my investigation when I get there because the gun's not there, right? 
I'm sorry, officer. He is not going to hurt you no more. But they do want to pick guns up. Next slide. Okay. Um, next slide. That's just a repeat. Okay. So here is this, this blood on the pillow matches the blood on him. Next slide. That right there is an entrance hole of the pillow. So the pillow was on top of him. Go back one if you can. So you can see there's blood on the chest and his stomach. It matches right there. Go forward. And that's, so he had the pillow on him, the shotgun on him, and then he was shot. Why would someone put a shotgun on a chest before they pull the trigger? To muffle the sound. Okay. Next. Okay. So again, we see the injuries, uh, the pillows, the three pictures there. It just matches, uh, the wounds. So, so we know the pillow was on him and stayed on him for a time after he got shot. Okay. Next. So, I'm um, sorry. Go ahead. More. Again, there's the big hole. I mean, I said you could pick up to walk through it. As far as holes go, that's a big hole. Okay. Okay. Next slide. That's just close up of the pillow. You can see the burn marks around the pillow. Next slide. Burn marks around the uh, around the wound itself. Next slide. Uh, again, turn him over. Uh, take pictures because we see there's no exit wound. So whatever went in stayed in, right? So it's our job as coroners come in and investigators come in and figure out. Remember. Homicide, suicide, accident. It's not natural. It's not natural for people to have holes in their belly and their chest. And and so, is it an accident, homicide, or suicide? Or, we may have to go to undetermined. I don't want to go there, but we might have to. But it didn't come out of him. But we do see the lividity is in, in line. We see this line of lighter color here matches the, the crack in the cushion. Because, again, if there's any pressure on the back, it won't uh, pool in those, in those capillaries. Next slide. Um, okay. so. Let's let, let's go back. Let's go back a couple. Yeah, I'll show you. We'll we'll talk about this. Go back. Go back. Go back. All all the way to the gun. Let's go back all the way to the gun. Uh, one more. Let's see. Yeah, right there. Okay. So we see a cord's over the gun and the safety's on. So it's our job to reconstruct this crime scene. So could the person have done it or not? Remember the quadriplegic can't get up and get your own gun. So we have to reconstruct that. So we have to measure his arm. We have to measure the gun. We have to think about the pillow. What the arrows. Could this have been this? Could he have used the arrow? How could he have done it? Uh, the phone is laying there. It's, it's a flip phone. So it's open, but it's not connected. All the investigation we determined, he was on he was on the phone with his girlfriend. And the girlfriend said his voice got really muffled, which meant he dropped the phone. Right? He held the gun on the pillow. Used the arrow and pulled the trigger with the arrow because he couldn't reach it. The arrow then fell beside him, you've seen on the floor, and the gun fell behind the couch because the recoil kicked it up and fell behind the couch. It wasn't against the wall. You say, well, how'd that cord get across there? Well, it wasn't a very broad picture there, We, that, but in the broad picture you can see there's a stack of equipment back there, uh, tools and stuff. Well, when the gun fell off of there, it actually hit uh, like a drill, like a drill or whatever, and it flipped that drill over, caused the cord to fall on top of the gun, right? Now, we wasn't there and don't know that, but what we have to do as investigators is put the pieces together and come up with the theory of, did, could this have happened this way? Is this how this occurred? And then talking to the girlfriend and doing a full victimology on him and, and, you know, she was leaving him and he was having trouble at work and, and does, is he suicidal and all the victimology, we determined in the end, that this was a suicide. But you can tell by looking at those pictures, it don't look like a suicide. 
There's a lot of there that, that could definitely be homicide. But we know he was home alone. We know there wasn't anybody else there, according to neighbors. We can't prove that yet. But through all that investigation, like I said, it's been years and years ago, we ruled it suicide, and it turned out to be fine. But that's the job of a coroner, okay? Now, the Coroner Talk podcast talks about just these kind of things. And that's that's what you're here for, just because the title of this talk was Coroner Talk Podcast. The last week's show was about mental health. We talk about the mental health of police officers and coroners. Uh, we may talk about anthropology. We might we might talk about a case like this. We might talk about burning bodies in trunks of a car for training. I mean, we talk about whatever the topics are to help investigators, police officers, and coroners to do a better job. So if you'd be interested in listening to that podcast, you're welcome to any podcast place. You can download it. It's not restricted. But understand that it's not theatrical. You know, we don't we don't put the theatrical true crime stuff in there with the sound effects and make it make it entertaining. It may be very entertaining in some cases, but it's all true. It's the truest of the true crime podcast because we're talking about real crime. We just don't try to make it entertaining. It's just a good conversation between professionals. So yes. Yes, I have on a couple of them. Yeah, we mass murders, homicides, suicides, uh, car accidents, grandma, whatever. We, you know, we get called in all of those. So, so in our county, there's three. Uh, in our county, there's three investigators. Huh? Crawford. We're on the other side of Franklin. And Crawford County is a, is a, is a, it uh, is a smaller rural county in a way. Uh, but it's interesting because, uh, of Crawford County, there is five counties in the judicial circuit. Okay, that's how Missouri's made up in courts. Our our county has more caseload than the other four combined. We have a large tourist population there because of the rivers and things like that. Uh, we have a lot of folks out of the city that goes down there and figure, well, once you pass the Franklin County border, you're in like uh, the Wild West. You know, you actually drive west on 44, so they believe they're in no man's land. And so we get a lot of, okay, we get floaters down there that we put a big billboard up that says how many people have died and how many people were injured by jumping off of this bluff. And we put it really close to the bluff and put big numbers. So they go around the other side of the bluff to jump off. And then we just go up there and change the number, you know, because they just won't, you know, that's the type of people we get. All right. A lot, lots of drinking, lots of drugs, lots of parties. We got interstate. So yes, we're very busy in the death investigation field down there uh, because we have a mass population. They don't all live there, but they come there for various reasons. So. Um, it's about an hour and twenty minutes. So, so, so we're if you was on forty four, and we're off of that here. But it's uh, it's like eighty five miles from the arch. So, yeah. Anybody else? Any other questions? We're getting close on our time. I mean, I can answer anything. We got a few more minutes, so you're getting ready to go hear Mary Case. Oh, I don't know. After all these years, I know one I almost showed, but I I didn't I didn't know if I wanted to. Um, a mother uh, killed her uh, three children, came down to our county, killed her three children on the riverbank. You probably heard about that a few years ago. She was from somewhere in the city area, town of country, Ledoux, something like that. Um, you know, we've had a lot of interesting autoerotic deaths. Autoerotic is when you use some type of instrument to increase sexual pleasure, but that instrument kills you. It could be a noose. It could be electrical outlet. It could be any number of weird things we won't get into in mixed company. Uh, but that ends up killing you. So we see you at your worst. We, we, we can see you, we can see you at your worst sometimes. Anybody else? Yes. So, so nursing homes and hospice, we must be notified on all of them. If, 
Uh, we don't get a good answers to our five questions. And then sometimes randomly, we go out to the hospice and the nursing homes. Uh, we have to be notified. Um, and we go out enough times to keep guessing whether we're going to show up because we don't want a, a, a mercy nurse, right? Killing people. Um, but then, but then if they can't answer my five questions correctly, like medication in line, body marks, things like that, then we definitely have to go out and take jurisdiction and investigate to make sure it was a natural. Because we're going to die in, in a nursing home. You're there for one reason. The family, the family sticks you in there to die. You may be in there for 20 years. You may be in there for two months, but nursing homes generally have a lot of people die. And I know that was a broad brush and that ain't what we use nursing homes for all the time. But people die in nursing homes constantly. Hospital deaths are different. If someone dies and they've been in the hospital for a long time and they, uh, several days or weeks and they die in the hospital, medical examiner's offices are notified, right? But if they're under doctor's care, it's a different thing. Another interesting thing is if you have an accident in Crawford County, per se, let's say, and you get flown to St. Louis and you die in St. Louis, that reverts back to the county of origin, right? Last last comment I'll make, interesting case, we had a car accident between a county line, and the person died in uh, the other county, and so uh, on the interstate, so I called the coroner, said I need to remand this to you, uh, because um, they died in our county, sorry, but we could see where the first rollover of the car was in Phelps County, they rolled twice in Phelps, and then ejected, and then they died in our county, and we was like, the, the, the incident started in Phelps County. Well, he had some bad words to say to me, and then he said, I will be there in a few moments. So, again, wherever the incident started. So, any other questions? Okay. Oh, my. Yep. But what I want to know is that three days. Three days Never know. So, so, it doesn't necessarily, if he's in the water, that, that can change. And I understand now why you're asking questions about water. If it's hot, it's going to, it's going to go faster. If it was deeper, it'll be cooler down there. If a person was murdered and and had holes in them, for instance, they were shot. I'm I'm just guessing. Well, then you wouldn't bloat as much, right? So there's a lot of things. So that's one thing about death investigation is it's an art and a science. I can show you what happens, and then I can give you 15 reasons of why that might be different based upon a lot of things. You got fish. You got you got just the water itself changes decomposition rates. Yeah, yeah, you just know it's all can be different. All right, anybody else? All right, thank you. Have a great afternoon. Thanks for listening to Coroner Talk, a DSPN media production. Visit our website at coronertalk.com. And be sure to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash coroner training. 3617-1024 scene on route to morgue.